Well, hey everyone, it's Jason here. I wanna welcome you to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today's special, we're bringing you into a conversation we had with the Church Leaders Incubator with Mark Sayers. Now, the Incubator is a committed group of about 15 pastors who are part of a program. And once a month, among other things, once a month, we get online, we go on Zoom, and we have a guest speaker. We let them share, and then we ask them the honest questions we have as pastors. And recently, we had Mark Sayers with us, and it was such a profound time. And as the team was talking, we realized this would be worth sharing with the broader podcast audience. That's what we have today. We have snippets from our session with Mark Sayers. For those that don't know, Mark Sayers is the pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. He's the author of Disappearing Church, Reappearing Church, and A Non-Anxious Presence is his most recent book. And every time we have Mark on the podcast or we chat with him, he's so thoughtful. Like he might be the best at unpacking sort of the cultural movements happening around the world, political, cultural, making sense of our time. But he's deeply prophetic and he's a local church guy. This is what's amazing about Mark. He's doing this in the context of a local church. So he has this unique way of speaking prophetically into what's ahead, discerning our times, but bringing it right to the ground of pastoral leadership in our day-to-day life. And he's a real heart for Canada. Often he'll share about how he feels that Canada has been uniquely positioned in the global church. And we talk about a number of these themes and more in our conversation. So I'm looking forward for you to hear all of it. One thing we love about Compassion Canada is their commitment to the local church and to local church leaders. It's really something that's built into their identity as an organization. And that's one reason why we're happy to partner with them at CCLN. In the 25 countries where Compassion serves children living in poverty, they invest in local churches, pastors, and volunteers to equip and empower the church to reach their neighbors with practical care and the good news of Jesus. Here in Canada, it's the exact same. Compassion is wholly committed to investing in Canadian local church leaders, in particular during these times when refreshment and connection and refueling is so needed. Compassion is doing things like national pastors calls and giving away free resources for pastors. We know you'll find rich connection in reaching out to the Compassion Church team. They'd even love to just hear how you're doing and to pray for you. You can get in touch with them today by heading to Compassion.ca. That's Compassion.ca. Maybe just to start, why don't you give a little bit of context for, you know, where you are, your your world, just a bit of an introduction to the different hats you wear. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I am the senior leader of Red Church here in Melbourne. And uh, I also, I guess, have a ministry outside of that as well which is, I guess, really writing, speaking. Um, God sort of in the last season with the pandemic, you know, sort of changed that and um, uh, not changed it per se, but it's just been really interesting. I guess a lot of it's supporting leaders and helping them with issues around leadership, renewal, um, but also culture is a real, you know, um, thing that God has had me speaking into. So it's been fascinating just in the last two years. I barely, we had it quite significant lockdown here in Melbourne for a while. We were the world's longest lockdown city. So I barely, literally, I think three times have gone more than uh, like probably, you know, barely left more than five, uh, three miles of my house in two years, which is really interesting for me. Um, But then had this opportunity just to speak to leaders across the world in every continent about what's happening at this moment. And um, yeah, so that's just a small, uh, married to Trudy. I have um, a daughter, Grace, uh, who's 14, and I have twin boys, uh, who are 10. Sweet. Um, and you're just saying, um, as we're logging on here, that you're celebrating 20 years in this role and you have to actually celebrate that with the board. Take us into a little bit of the, yeah, just that moment. And uh, what I love to hear is maybe a bit of reflection, like, you know, you're a young man, Mark, but you know, you're com- com- on this call, you're a senior experience leader. And so looking back, I love just to hear as you're just, I know I'm sure you're taking time to reflect on 20 years in ministry and just what kind of reflections you're carrying with you. Yeah. So I went to our annual general meeting um, last night and it was, it was an interesting one. We in the pandemic felt um, we didn't meet for a long time. We've only just met last two weeks um, in person. Um, We also, we had a brief moment sort of in January, we could come back for a little bit. It was a few weeks there and so it's, it's like a complete disruption to our church we redid our idea of membership 
and we raised the bar quite significantly, which has been a really transformative thing for us. And so it was the meeting of those people. So my mind was on, you know, that, the changes we've made in the church, annual general meeting. And, um, yeah, in the middle of it, they sort of um, stopped. And uh, it was a bit weird when they were briefing us about this or briefing me, me, briefing me about this meeting. I noticed that there was some missing bits and I just thought I'll, I'll trust the team. But I think it was, it was really quite moving. Um, uh, also, particularly in Australia, um, it's a unique culture and our culture of leadership is very different. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time in, in the, your uh, southern neighbour um, and um, there's a real like authority and, and honouring the leader. Australia's the complete opposite. We're radically egalitarian as a, as a nation. And um, part of that has a strong, really strong Irish uh, cultural streak. And with that comes the tall poppy syndrome where leaders are to be put in their place and the average citizen's job is to make sure leaders uh, don't think too highly of themselves. <laughs> and, uh, my, my mentor, Terry Walling, who's, who is from California but spent about 10 years working in Australia, you know, said to me early on in my ministry journey, one thing you're going to have to, to uh, work with is the fact that you're going to be continually starved of any positive feedback and also that you're going to be continually criticised um, so a talk that I used to give to young Australian leaders was that, I don't think anyone's seen, there's an old movie called Mr. Holland's Opus, and it's about an ordinary man who's a music teacher, but at the end of his life, all these people come and thank him. And I used to have this talk, which was, in Australia as a leader, you'll never get your Mr. Holland's Opus moment. <laughs> so you do it for God. Um, so to have a sort of moment like that last night was really uh, quite special and uh uh, really quite emotional. I had my old senior pastors, Alan and Deb Hirsch. Um, some of you might know Alan and Deb Hirsch um, appear on video and and it just felt like this moment of seeing. The most beautiful thing for me, it wasn't even the nice words, it was seeing Alan and Deb uh, on video, then me, but then Brittany, who's um, one of our pastors who's coming up, then gave this speech and just to see the transformation that God's done in her life. It was that sense of leadership. It's not about, I think when you're younger, you think my leadership journey what God like gave me a gift last night was seeing some really nice, thankful words from people, but to actually see the bigger picture that this is not about my journey. This is about a generational handing over of the baton uh, through those levels of leadership. So that was just really beautiful. I love that. Um, I feel like you saw a lot of us nodding to understanding that similar cultural streak of like, yeah, the better you're doing, the more you just get roasted. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, um, I want to I lean into sort of some reflections on 20 years, but I just wonder if they have any more, any more to say on that. Because I think what I often feel is there's this, like, I think I'd love to see more honor. I think we'd get more done if there's a bit more honor. Um, but there's also, like, there's something that we don't, like, there's, there's something that we're experiencing, seeing, reflecting on from an American style of leadership, that's the extreme opposite. And I just wonder how you just personally navigated that reality of just like, you you know, you're called to where you are. And there's even one framework that you gave me. I think it was just, I don't think we were recording it where you just talked about like, there's this U S model of like the cowboy that kind of goes out. And then the factory, you know, all the factory workers. And one of the things I feel like I celebrate about Canada, I think is similar to Australia is like, we have a better shot at doing team leadership and seeing people mm -hmm. flourish in their gifts. But it does come with real challenges. So I just wonder if there's any more reflections that you might be able to pass on to us because our context feels similar in that way. Oh, totally. Um, oh, this, is, this is one of the most fascinating subjects, I think. And one of the first things I realized being a Canadian or an Australian is you're doing two forms of cultural analysis. Um, the first one is you're, you're ana analyzing your context. So I'm analyzing always, I'm doing ministry in Australia and I'm doing ministry in Melbourne and I'm doing ministry in a state. My state and my city has a different culture to the rest of just like Canada's provinces are different. My states are different. So that's the first one. What's my local context? But then I realize you've always got this other cultural analysis where even though I'm not in America, I'm culturally analyzing America because the Christian world is, is shaped by a lot of resources from the US. And we're always getting these cultural influences coming in. And it's really interesting. So, you know, you look at the last federal election, uh, general election in, in Canada, you know, I was reading some articles and just how like people talk about this language of like, oh, we're seeing influences from the US come into this electoral process. Same thing we have here in Australia. So you're doing these two, two cultural analyses always at the same time. And then you're asking, what's the kingdom of God? 
and what's the culture of that all at the same time. So whereas in America, they're just, they're just doing one. They're just like, what is it to be an American? And um, one thing I noticed is leadership, it's, it's so key to realise how profoundly our cultures see leadership differently. If you think about the Westminster parliamentary system, where does the true power reside? It's distant and it's far away. And it's sort of the benevolent queen is like far away. It's a really different power. When you compare that to the president, the president models this executive power who's there and always in the game and always defining everything and almost like the health of the nation. So it's almost like we have you know, prime minister and parliament who are trying to work out what to do about what the the, the, big, the real leader far away, who could, like the queen, um, there's a fascinating um, uh, British um, series um, that they did of what if Prince Charles becomes king and then actually exercises the power that he could. So in it, he just rocks up to British parliament and goes, I'm not accepting that law and I'm dissolving parliament, which he actually could do. I don't think he ever would. But it was fascinating to see like, what if Prince Charles became like a US president? And you know, they have this whole drama that goes out from there. But I think it tells us something really interesting about the British system, which we've inherited in our own ways with our own unique distinctives, actually has a real, um, it holds power and understands that two-directional nature of power. It, it realised that the king needed to be restrained. And so we hold power in a much more cynical and a much more wary way. And that bleeds down. So whereas in America, there's this sense of honouring and this sense of power will save us and almost an idolization of the senior, the big leader, the CEO, the rock star, <laughs> that quarterback. Um, I think our systems hold it much more loosely. But the problem is all the books we get, some of the podcasts we listen to, some of the leadership uh, models that we've inherited from the US. And I don't want to just completely... You know, there's so much good stuff that I've learned from and been blessed by so many US leaders. So I don't want this just to be a complete, this is an analysis versus a, a complete takedown. But then you come into a system where you're trying to exercise power in a church and your models are the strategic, visionary CEO leader. And then you come into a Canadian church or an Australian church and you're doing that. And people are completely, completely in a different cultural framework. And it's such a difficult thing to navigate. So people actually almost are culturally wired. We are culturally wired as Commonwealth nations to really mistrust power. So people then will look for different kinds of power. Um, and what I realized is what I think we have an opportunity then, because it's hard, it's, it's, it's really hard to lead. And I have this, I live in these bizarre two worlds where I'll be in Australia most of the time and then I'll go to the US and like, like honestly, here in Australia, barely anyone in my city could care less that I've written books and done this or whatever. Like, and if they do, they're not going to tell me. So even even last night, after we had these beautiful talks and people thanking me, and and we finished and they had like cupcakes, there was this amazing moment of just complete awkwardness where like half the room are like, "All right, he's had enough praise." I'm just going to say, you know, g'day, mate. How are you going? Or <laughs> like, in America. You know, I go to America, like, you have people come like, I just want to honour you, what you've done in my life. It's just incredible. You know, just like all this stuff, which is, which is nice to have as an occasional hit when I visit. But in my context, it's, it's so starved. But what I realised is there's an invitation, and I think it was also an invitation in, in Canada, spiritual authority, spiritual authority. There is positional authority. Justin Trudeau has positional authority. The minute he's no longer prime minister, he loses that positional authority. Now, he might become the, the leader of his party or might go and become in, in business or whatever. Queen has positional authority. Um, there's also charisma authority. There's just people who are big personalities. Um, you know, uh, if you look at, say, Obama, Obama's no longer president, but he still has authority because he's got this charisma and he's got this experience. Um, so there's positional authority, there's like charismatic, personality-driven authority. Celebrity is another kind of authority, which is simply how many people know who you are and how much you can leverage that. And that's becoming more and more powerful. So in our world, we've got this ba battle between institutional power and celebrity power. But then in the scriptures, what kind of power does Jesus have? What's Jesus's position? He's just a carpenter. He's just a bloke who's a tradesperson. He 
you don't hear about his incredible personality, his, his, his amazing jokes, the way he can light up a room. What he actually has is spiritual authority that's conferred from the Father, that comes from the intimacy with the Father. And I believe actually we have this opportunity. What I realized is like, man, it's going to be, it's going to be hard, Mark. This is my self-talk. It's going to be hard, Mark, leading in Australia. You're going to be starved of, of feedback. People are going to hold leadership always uncomfortably with you. You're almost going to have to apologize. So what we do, and I think Canadians are particularly world-class at this, is almost this sort of apologetic nature, step back, apologetic, let others take the limelight. Don't talk too much about yourselves. Brilliant. You know, Australians do that. We're a little, we're a little bit more Irish and a, a little bit more. Um, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk a lot. We'll attack other people. Um, but I think that what I realise is going to cut through is spiritual authority because that cuts through in any culture. People see something; it's intangible. And I think also what's happening in the world is the American model is is collapsing. I listened to a podcast. Um, on how does corruption happen in China? And they said, corruption begins with a culture of honour. I thought, wow. And they said, what happens in China, a, a governor will move to a province and everyone will turn up at their door giving them gifts. Why are they giving them gifts? They want to honour them. But the guy said, the problem with the honour culture is there's an unspoken exchange happening. You know, you know, if I, if I came to you, Jason, and said, you know, like, I just want to honour you, man, so I'm going to give you $70,000, no strings attached. He'd be like, oh, that's, wow, that's amazing. There's strings. <laughs> what are the strings? Um, and in a sense, you owe me. And, and that's also what happens with honour culture. God, I think, is offering us in our context, and I think particularly in Canada, is to model a new kind of leadership based on spiritual authority not based on the filing model of a charisma, institutional, positional, celebrity kind of leadership. That's the invitation that we're being invited into. Um, one of the things I heard you sharing on Rebuilders is um, the work of the individual, um, of the pastor to kind of like, I think you use the metaphor of like accounts, like we live in a moment where there's a, like there's a public account what you do on instagram you get public honor or public affirmation and this idea of like a private account and i guess it's twofold question like one is can you unpack that a little bit but then second how does that connect to this idea of authority and spiritual authority yeah i think we're really aware of like metrics and we're really aware of things which mark success you just mentioned a couple then, which could be, you know, you put up a post and how many people like that post. Um, it could be uh, how many people, um, uh, you know, tune into a, you know, an online service. It could be how many backsides on seats in an auditorium. So we're used to these things, which in a sense, building our clouds in a public sense. And often we'll see that is aligned to leadership. So, wow, that person grew that church from 20 people to 5,000 people, or that person's all of a sudden got 100,000 Instagram followers. You know, if someone on here all of a sudden over the next six months started posting some spiritual reflections and got to a million, you know, Instagram followers, people would start treating them differently because we have this innate thing to recognize these sort of affirmations. And I have this sense that what God is doing at this moment is actually looking at this very, very different an older and I think more biblical way of doing leadership, which is there is another metric. And it's really hard to measure from earthly perspectives, but it's a metric which actually is so deeply important and it's the hidden places. It's investing in the eternal things. And what I've realized is as a leader, my public ministry is completely connected to the hidden spaces in which I'm saying yes to God. The biggest advances that Red has had in taking ground for the kingdom, every single one, bar none, I can trace back to a moment, sometimes in this office, uh, uh, before it was redone, when we just bought this building and it was a dingy building and just in moments of prayer, moments of the most difficult questions where I had to say yes to God, but no one was watching, uh, where you have to turn down even sometimes incredible opportunities for your call. It's easy to turn down when you're a younger leader, bad opportunities. Oh, here's the thing I shouldn't be doing. 
What's really difficult is turning down things which will actually massage your ego and seemingly give you worldly clouts for the sake of the kingdom. And so I actually think what the next season is, is this next season for the next generation of leaders coming up is actually going to be one in the hidden places. There will be public evidence of that, but personal renewal leads to corporate change. Everyone wants the corporate change. We want our churches to grow. We want to see the church expanded in Canada. We want to see justice roll down from the mountains. But what very few are prepared to do is actually start that process in the hidden places. Can you tell me more about the work of the hidden place? And just, I think all of us could probably go out and give our own answer to it. I think it's just a unique opportunity to just let it, like for the, almost for the sake of it just not being vague, you know, because so we can't hide from the invitation that I think you're putting in front of us. Like, what does it mean? We're all leading churches. We're busy. We got opportunities, a lot going on. And if I'm honest about this group, um, there's a measure of success, you know, like things are going not, not on every front, not when of us feel up, it's like things are, there's some things that are working. We're firm for different things. And um, it's tempting to keep on going while there's maybe that, yeah, so maybe just to speak more into what you feel like it, whether it's for you personally or for what it would be for a group of us to actually prioritize the hidden place and what comes from that. Firstly, I see partially the hidden place as the wilderness. David has this really fascinating polar extremes of the wilderness and the palace. And David is formed in the wilderness. The Psalms emerge from the wilderness. And what is the wilderness? The wilderness, a desert, is an absence of, of things. And the palace is filled with things. The palace is luxury. The palace is appreciation. The palace is positional leadership. And David goes well when he, in the palace he remembers the ways of the wilderness. Just before Bathsheba, there's this great line where it says, Israel, basically Israel went to battle but David lingered in the palace. And I often think about that line. And I think, what's he doing there? He's creating this space where he's being defined by the palace. But imagine being a palace. You've got attendees, you know, attendants. You've got people. It's luxury. It's people giving you stuff. It's, 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 it's what the average person didn't have. So for me, I realized that leadership can never feed me. Never feed me. I've had these moments where there have been these things which God has brought, you know, whether it's something that I've done, a book, uh, speaking at a conference, a moment where the church has grown, and these fruit comes. But you realize that's actually the fruit of the kingdom. It's never fruit to feed yourself. So I think the first thing of the hidden place is where are you fed? Particularly, again, when you're in a context like Canada and you're not going to get the affirmation and honor, it can actually get scary and lonely. And I think the loneliness of leadership is something that a lot of people don't understand and it's a necessary sacrifice. Um, to be honest, like uh, tw- the story of 20 years is you begin with a whole crew of friends who are at a similar level and you see them then disappear. I met up with one of our denominational leaders yesterday who's a bit older than me. And he said, Mark, in your generation, there is virtually no leaders left in Melbourne. And I said, I know. I know their names. I know my mates who have deconstructed their faith. I know my mates who 15 years ago were in church planting seminars with me and we were like, we're going to do this together. And I literally, I've seen them all fall. That's even at times been betrayal um, where uh, you've done the right thing for God and because you then become this symbol of someone who's still following God, they then to find themselves against you. And so for me, I realized that I could not even look for solace, even in that group who I was traveling with, that I had to then go to that hidden place. But there's not much in the hidden place, but what's in the hidden place? The burning bush. The still small small voice of God. And so isolation became an invitation. And I actually don't feel isolated now. I actually feel that I've been called to be a leader, which means my life is never going to look like everyone else's life. And I've said yes. But what I get from that 
the fruit is the love of Jesus and his understanding of me, his forgiveness of me, uh, my life and intimacy with him. And that is most powerful in the most difficult times. And I think the hidden place becomes truly precious and the hidden place becomes a prayer room, not just a desert, in the toughest seasons. Thanks for sharing that, bro. Um, anybody have a, a follow-up question to that, that thread? I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and we'll have more time for more questions after we process a little bit in small groups. But did anyone have like a, you want to press a little bit deeper? I see Alex. Yeah, go for it, buddy. Yeah, uh, Mark, I was just trying to think through, you said like in the hidden place is the burning bush. And then you said like uh, your call as a leader, and I think you meant it for um, just all of us in a sense is an aspect where your life will never look normal in the sense of what it looks like for other people. And I just wondered if you wanted to tease that out a bit. And you, the example you gave is having to make like a tough call in when it comes to someone that you work with in ministry. But um, I think you meant it that more than just that. So could you just yeah. flesh that out a little bit more? The priestly role, and I mean that in its broader sense, is to sacrifice. Mm. We no longer have to sacrifice to gain salvation. Jesus has done that all on the cross for us. But we live in this place of sacrifice between heaven and earth. And my life is actually continually having to put the eternal perspective. Um, I'm still friends with some of my mates from school. And I'll catch up with them. And what I notice is they don't carry the responsibility, the heaviness <laughs> of continually being out of step with the culture, of continually being misunderstood, of they can just pick up and go away for a weekend when they want. Uh, they don't often face continual criticism. They may, they may in their job in certain bits. You know, I don't want to say that other people don't live without troubles. but. I think one of the big mistakes, the myths of the church is the myth of relevancy that you can be a Christian and you can be a Christian leader and you can have everything the world offers you with a Christianized form and the sin removed. It's bigger than that. It, it, it's, it's, it's sacrifice. And I think very few young leaders have been taught that. When I've read, I, I, I increasingly only read older books, Christian books, and, you know, I think about the book Intercessor by Reese Howes. And, you know, he gives up so much and he's just praying in this little room in Wales in mid-century. No one sees it. But the sacrifice of that time he plates in that hidden place then has all this kingdom fruit. So we're never going to have the lives that the contemporary 21st century world offers us. Um, but we get something greater. Why? Because we're sacrificing for the sake of, of heaven, which is coming to earth and which is a great reordering of things where it's like, okay, I see it is how we operate is we're in a store and there's the worldly set of what everything's valued with the price tags. We come in and Jesus gives us a completely different set of price tags. So we're always going to be out of sync with the world. Why? Because we actually believe in the heavily valuing of things. That's helpful. Thank you. Mark, one of the things I'm processing as you're saying that is like, um, I feel like, you know, but we're all friends with Daryl, but you know, my friendship with Daryl as well. Like part of walking with Daryl has been this journey of not like judging other Christian leaders, but like, I feel like I was pitched a version of Christian leadership where you could succeed worldly, like not as much money. If you always say like, I would make more if I went corporate, but I can still do really well. Not as much affluence not as much um social and again i'm not trying to like be like specific to lose the point and because there's lots of exceptions but like i'm just trying to name the fact that i feel like i've actually adopted this degree of like i think i can have both mm. um and i'm not talking about a poverty mentality or a monk mentality mm. um i'm just curious I'm just trying to, I'm actually just verbally processed with everyone. I feel like I'm in this process of like, the more I even journey with Daryl, the more I see a guy who has counted the cost differently and his whole life mm. is ordered differently and didn't play certain games that I, mm. so it's just, it's something I'm processing. Can, can I just make a comment on that? Like, yeah, uh, watching from afar, I think it's really beautiful what's happening with 
Daryl and, and leadership in, in Canada. The first time I think I met Daryl, I think we were together, I think we were in, in Vancouver, and he didn't speak <laughs> in the first meeting. It was a room, I just rock up as a room of people I've met for the first time. He didn't speak, but people kept saying to me, it was so interesting. People kept saying, oh, have you read his book? This, this, this guy. It wasn't like go and check out, you know, like often you'll come into a city and, you, you know, you sort of have a pick up on social media world of who's the leaders and so on. But exactly, I think what I'm talking about has been evidence in Daryl. There's a spiritual authority, a wisdom, a depth that cuts through that people are like, crap, I don't know what that is, but that's different, but I, I sort of want that. Mm-hmm. What he has is spiritual authority, which which is emerging from a deeper place. That is 100% the kind of leadership, the only leadership that's going to make any kingdom difference in the next season. Mm. There'll be people emerge and there'll be some, I mean, probably, you know, who'll be the next, there'll be some bloke or or someone who's like the next star of the metaverse when it comes. Mm. Uh, but what's always going to remain the same is that spiritual authority. Um, hey, Mark, you you um, you talked about the idea of the theme of sacrifice and used the the picture of like price tags and kind of the kingdom's price tags just changes all the price tags. And, and you mentioned like, I feel like it's the thing that young leaders, specifically young like church leaders and pastors just haven't seen or been taught. What, you know, going back to that price tag analogy, like what do you feel like are the top couple ones that either like church leaders are living in a place where that price tag is the same kingdom or world. And it's actually quite different. They're just living in a different facade or like, what, what do you feel like those three things that church leaders are living kind of in a worldly value, but don't realize there's a kingdom value that's quite different. If that makes sense. Totally. Um, I think one is self-actualization. Abraham Maslow had this idea of self-actualization that you get to this point where you really know yourself and you're centered and you're at peace with yourself and you'll find this perfect role and you'll be perfectly knowledgeable about how to do it and you won't be anxious and you'll have the perfect patterns of rest and you'll just be this complete Zen being who's happy with themselves and the world. It will never ever happen because we can't find ourselves we are the lost sheep and what's incredible is the savior has come after each of us we have been taught by the world and even increasingly by voices within the church to find ourselves we can't find ourselves knowledge is not found within knowledge is found in jesus who finds us and so I think that moment, like you're never going to get to this moment like, oh, man, I'm just at this Zen point, you know, like I, I'm not going to get on here and go, okay, 20 years in ministry, that's just, I'm just sitting here lavished in the glories of being completely centered and perfect myself. There, there are things God's calling me into at the moment. Like, you know, I just went to everyone, you know, global pandemic, my goodness. There are so many things coming down the, the road at us. Um, there's people here who are going to have health crises. There's people with family stuff that's going to happen. You'll never get to that moment, but Jesus will get to you in that moment. And so I think we've just got to kill this whole thing. Like part of the whole great resignation thing that's happening at the moment, there's a whole economic, social thing happening. But a lot of it is that there's a generation who've been told that you're going to find this job and it's going to give you meaning and it's going to fill a hole in you. Well, let's just go back to the dark ages, Augustine, still smarter than anyone today. Our hearts are restless till they find their home in God. And ministry will never feed you. Ministry success will never feed you. I speak about culture. Culture's been my thing. And I had this thing like, you know, a hunger because God, that's how God's created me to be. In 2011, I went with Alan Hirsch, my old boss, to Q Conference. Q, Q Conference is like the, the culture place, you know, it's the thing. And I set up the back, it was in Nashville, and Al spoke and said, oh, wow, maybe one day, maybe one day. People might recognize what God's done in me. And I go to the front there and I speak there. Well, man, what would that feel like? That'd be amazing. Three, four years ago, I spoke on the main stage at Q. <laughs> and you're up there and you're talking. 
And it's like, you got 21 minutes, this countdown clock, and you get down and you get off. And it's just like, oh, it's just nothing. <laughs> now, I know people are impacted by that. Someone kept punching me and said, I was really impacted. What did it do for me? Zilch. You cannot feed yourself on your own kingdom fruit. It's never for me. That's one. Uh, I might not get to three. Um, being seen. If you're seen by enough people, you'll be known and something will be rearranged in you. And when people know you, then you're going to get to some leadership point where you'll have leverage and ability to change things. As leaders, you have all signed up to a lifetime of being misunderstood by fallen humans who will look at you and they won't even see you. They will see some weird composite in their head of perhaps the father issues they're working through, the mother issues they're working through, what they think a pastor should be like from the Lutheran church, the Mennonite church, the Anglican church, what the heck they come from. They will put that on you. I've had conversations past where people are talking to me. I'm like, halfway through, I'm like, you're not even talking to me. You're talking to something else. And you feel unseen. The weirdest thing is the leaders are often the person at the front and everyone's looking at them, but you feel unseen. The world, I think, tells us that what is important is celebrity. And we all laugh at it and deconstruct it, but it's partly we're bored to ourselves. But we are not. We are seen by Jesus. Again, this is why the hidden place is so important. And we have to not use the platforms of ministry to fill empty holes in ourselves that the culture encourages us to fill with the things of this world. We need to be fed on Jesus. Ministry is sacrifice to Paul. It's a vocation. And they're just two. Uh, I'll stop now because it's a long answer, which I tend to give one answer. In your preamble, you had mentioned um, how that you guys are like raising the bar on membership and rethinking that and reforming that. And instantly I was like, tell me more. So love to hear what that looks like, what that means and kind of what your process has been. I think what is starting to collapse and going to come under incredible pressure is cultural Christianity. Now we can say that as a term and everyone's like, yeah, absolutely. But what it gets really, really is the cultural Christians, the habitual Christians who are sitting in our congregations. <laughs> and I think like what we've seen in the US is staggering with the polarization of the church. It's coming out into other countries as well, the pandemic, and it's going to come more, the environment, everything. It's, it's, it's growing across the world. It's happening in Brazil, um, uh, but also at a massive rate. It's, it's all over the place. And what we realized is that the, almost the addiction that we've had is numbers because in a secular culture like, like Canada or Australia, you feel like the church is diminishing, but you almost want to go, no, 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 we've got a bunch of people over here. That's almost this counterpoint. And what I realized, though, is that the, the, one of the great questions I have is, why did I have so many conversations with leaders across the world who went into lockdown and after six weeks, people had been in their church for 10 years, after six weeks deconstructed their faith and didn't come back? Like, what on earth were we doing wrong? What was I doing wrong? There was a virus before the virus is what I say. And what the virus before the virus was, we're going to provide a church which meets your needs. And I began to just explore, what, you know, what's the church about? And a team began to look at it. And we thought, if you look, literally read the New Testament, what the New Testament is talking about, what is to belong to a church, it's, it, feels complete, it feels like an alien universe compared to what my day-to-day reality in dealing with people. I mean, I never forget that. We had someone write to us. I, I get a dry mouth as I'm preaching. And literally, someone had written this full-blown letter, like, can Mark please stop sipping while he's preaching water? And I'm like, like, you've written a 300-word essay on me sipping water. <laughs> like, like, what has gone wrong? You know, like, we had a letter like the other day. Someone wrote this whole letter about, I mentioned in some talk, some throwaway comment about, you know, the shepherds and, like, you know, shepherds wasn't a glamorous job. It might be like someone who has a fish and chip shop owner. Someone writes us a whole essay about um, devaluing low-income jobs. <laughs> My family had a fish and chip shop, by the way, so I've got, I've got skin in the ground. My grandfather owned one. So I was speaking from within. Um, but there's this moment where what is happening is the consumer, consumer mentality 
of people and the critique mentality of people. The cancel culture that's coming is not going to be just the cancel culture that's going to cancel you because of your orthodox views on sexuality or whatever. The cancel culture that is coming is growing and it's hitting everything from sporting bodies to high schools to everything where everyone's just complaining and complaining and complaining more and more and more and can do this with social media because you've not met their needs in the exact way that you thought they thought that you should. So we thought, well, actually, if we change membership because what if membership, which is something we've always held, like, oh, we feel a bit uncomfortable because is it inclusive and what's it saying and it's exclusive. And you mentioned membership and in our church, which is like a lot of millennials, everyone freaks out. We're just going to go in the opposite spirit. We're literally like, um, we're going to do membership. Here, here it is. So we're not going to tell you who's in or out. This is it. Do you want to sign up to this? And here's a whole theological statement. You will keep each other accountable. Church members, they, they create a culture of worship. They're generous. They share the gospel. They, they turn up. They are committed. This, this is what you're committing to. We're not going to make this exclusive but because anyone can sign up to that if you want to commit. And then you have to go on a discernment process and you have to pray about this over several weeks and we'll take you on this training, what is the church and everything. And then we had to create an online thing where they answer questions. Am I in alignment with Red Church's theological statement? Have I prayerfully considered? Can I say yes to it? And you would click online, no. All right, pray about it and then think about whether you want to do this next year. <laughs> so there was like this, 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 like honestly, this online thing where we made them discern it and they had to choose whether they were in or not. And so we, we have just done that. And there was a bunch of people, 30%. Who signed up self-selected themselves out. We had people who were left wing, who we weren't progressive in our theology enough. We had people who were really right wing, who were unhappy that we weren't making sort of, you know, like the the whatever church they wanted, self-select. Um, so I actually believe that going forward, a, a really strong biblical membership is going to be one of your best insulations for what is coming. What we realized is there's been a chasm a divorce between discipleship and membership. Mm. And I think that's been cancerous for the church. Because what I want is like, I want, if someone's going to get onto our board, if someone's going to lead in a function where you want to be a member, why on earth would I put someone who's not following Jesus with all their heart and is submitted and humble? Mm. And I think a lot of what we've seen, you know, and, and church dysfunction is, I think there's two, th- there's two things, and, and this could be opening a can of worms. There's two things happening, but I think this is really important. Rise and fall of Mars Hill. What we're seeing here is that this is an age of unrevealed. The cell phone means you can film a lot more. The Arab Spring revealed the injustice that we saw through a Tunisian um, vendor burning himself and create a whole movement. So you can reveal things. Me too, all of that. Mars Hill is, in a sense, that. So Mars Hill is the exposure of toxic leadership. And I think that's part of the judgment of God is doing that. The second thing that's happening, which other people aren't talking about as much is, yes, there is a revealing of toxic leadership, but there's a complete toxicity in our emotional landscape and relational landscape. So I do know the toxic leaders, but also know the good, humble, ordinary leaders who are literally being eaten alive by an increasingly toxic emotional environment. And we need protections both ways. Churches are, are, are getting good at protecting against toxic leadership. So, for example, I, I, there's a large denomination here and um, they have a complaints process and that's been a big thing here. We had a royal commission into historic abuse in churches, which has created all these safeguards for the leadership. This church has that, like our denomination does. This is another denomination. What this denomination is finding is that 70% of claimants who are making a claim of toxic leadership or bullying from leaders, the investigation process ends up discovering that those members of the congregation themselves are actually bullies. And there's a term we've got here called smart bullying, which is increasingly that it's being used in universities and corporates, that leadership are finding themselves living in droves, teaching everything because they're being systematically bullied by the people that they lead. Now, we're in a complex world where two contradictory things can happen at the same time. Toxic leadership, but toxic followership. 
uh, there is complaints I know of in the Christian world at the moment where people are filing claims against people uh, because they felt that by being discipled, they were being groomed, that by people doing mission, they were grooming people outside. All this language of abuse and all that, which is really important, and I'm not diminishing any of that in the rest of this, is being weaponized and used in other areas. So I feel like we're walking naively into a scenario where uh, we need protections for our leadership to be really accountable, but we need them for the people that we're following at the same time. If I'm doing some crazy dance here, but I don't have a whiteboard in front of me. One of the things that no one is talking about, but I'm seeing some of it in the secular corporate world, is millennials don't know how to lead Gen Z or Gen Z. And millennials, which I'm sure many people in here are used to, I'm the younger one, I'm looking upwards. The real challenge you're going to learn to live with is leading downwards. Hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting, I said there's the great resignation, this is in our paper, and there's the great cancellation. And what they said is, what happened is Gen Z will be cancelling their own bosses and that will just be a normal part. And it's not going to be cancelling over, you said this racist thing, it's like, oh, when you asked me to do that task, you raised your voice and you made me feel in this particular way. This person was saying that the trend they're going to say is that it will be normal for uh, team members to be filming their millennial bosses when they don't realise to use in future. And it's really interesting and it can sound quite scary. But what I'm seeing is like, what I'm saying to people is, is going forward is what I think people don't see is you're, you're moving with this team. Um, uh, okay, can, can, I, can, I, can I add one? Have you got time for me to add one thought here? Um, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, th- this, is, this is really key. Okay, so what I realized is um, there is obligation. Relational obligation is something that no one talks about in ministry. What relational obligation is, is I've traveled with that person for ages, therefore I owe them something. So then when two ministry choices come before me and God is speaking and maybe God's saying to do the right hand, but the left hand you have a relational obligation because they're your friends or you've traveled with them for ages or you know them and, hey, we're all buddies or whatever, um, we can trend towards this. What I'm seeing is that people get themselves in trouble because they're relationally obligated to people because particularly with millennials, there's a very flat, we're all moving together, we don't want anyone to stand up and be the leader until we become paralysed by relational obligation to people, not what God is calling us into. Now, what I see happening is that relational obligation is then weaponized. And when we don't get what we want, people use it against us. So leaders leading relationally, I'm seeing, are finding emerging generations coming up using that relationality against them. I'm seeing stories of people who've gone through entire internships who then are using the failings of that leader and not even bad failings, like really minor stuff, then as a form of, of uh, challenge. So I think that the leadership world that we're leaving is what we see is we got, how do I deal with my senior? How do I deal with this boomer? How do I deal with this Gen X so that I'm leading? That's, that's there. That will pass. But most of the people on this school's lives, the relational dynamics as a leader will actually be leading people under them who are emerging from this much more toxic, toxic and relational dynamic. Uh, uh, I'm hoping that makes sense. This is an emerging area of thoughts that I'm trying to name, but I am seeing it everywhere. Um, So what I believe, one of the key things we need to do is we need to detach a sense of personal and relational obligation from leadership. And maybe there's been a myth of relationality and we defined ourselves. We don't want to be like the boomer leader who's really CEO and professional and corporate. So we're going to be relational and flat, which is, okay, good. But there's a danger that a new idol emerges, which is this world of obligation. And when the moment when God says move forward and do something that those you're relationally obligated to might disagree with, we become paralyzed. Hmm. Hmm. 
And that's where you need what Friedman calls self-differentiation. I would call it Christ. Uh, I would change it, make it more Christian. Call it Christ differentiation. And you think about those moments when Jesus was being questioned by the disciples, his mates, the guys he'd walked with, that will be sleeping out, eating fish. There's moments where he says no to the friendship relational obligation for the greater goal of the kingdom. Mm. Mm. One of the things I hear you saying is, and I, we did a session with Daryl um, in person at our first retreat. And I don't know if you guys remember that part that stood to me the most was like about our audience being God. And he did that run about all the pressures that Jesus had, the political pressures, the religious pressure, his family, like his brother, his mom or whatever. And I asked Daryl for the notes and I haven't got them yet, but I'm going to be tracing them down because I just was, I couldn't take notes fast enough. I wanted to like almost memorize that. What I hear you saying, Mark, is like, it's not don't do relationship because like, I think we're so long for a relational model of ministry, but it's like the danger would be that while we're in that, those relational moments is still not to live to please, we can't live to please those people, you know? So is that right? I'm not hearing you say, don't, you're not saying don't do relational ministry, don't isolate, you know, but it's like the warning is you'll probably find your heart needing to please those people and there will be a moment where is that is that in my in my nuance in that right yes the previous generation's idol was sometimes the institution i see for emerging generations now the idol is peers hmm. sometimes previous generations would sacrifice the kingdom thing to keep the institution happy we will sacrifice it to keep our peers happy. It's 100%. We don't need isolated leaders, but I think we need to understand the role that obligation can play sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's when obligation comes. Um, and I think that's something we need to understand. So we need to lead those people under us, not in reaction to how we led mm-hmm. before, but actually with what they need going forward and what's actually happening now. Any final thoughts and then to pray over us as a group? Oh, look, um, you know, I, I think I started, I can't remember if I mentioned I started, I, I just feel we're at such a pivotal moment. One of my great quotes is um, that really has spoken to me a lot in this last season is by the Indian novelist um, Arundhati Roy, who said in the Financial Times in 2020 when the pandemic began that pandemics are portals in between worlds. And you mentioned the tube there. You go on the tube and you go deep down and then you're in London and you come up and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in this whole new place. And I think that's what it's been. We have gone underground, we're coming up, we're emerging into this new place. And it's not just about COVID. There's a profound shaking and reshaping in the world. And I think COVID is the first of a number of crises which are coming down the way towards us. Um, and I had this moment, like, like, as I said, I was thanked for my 20-year thing last night but seeing my millennial leaders like leading that thing they are profoundly transformed from where they were just simply two years ago i remember we had our first run through when we were going to go online we did that done line online before the pandemic and we got together on a saturday and ran through and there's a point at the end of the day where we prayed and i could see something had changed In these guys who, in a sense, were like the inter- they, they were my interns. So my whole team was pretty much my interns that I've moved and, and trained over like a number of years. And I remember just looking at them and a number were kneeling, we're in the circle praying, and it was like the world's like, what was going to happen? You know, was a third of the world going to die? Or what was, it was just felt so ominous. And I remember just about, you know, saying to God, God, this is going to be the making of them. And I felt God, like, I'd trained them so much, but I had to like put them in God's hands. And the change that I saw last night too is just absolutely profound. And my sense is that's been happening in this place as well. And I think it was Daniel who mentioned about the floods and it's just that moments of crisis that God shapes us and shapes churches. And I think of the last season, that was too comfortable. Like you look at, I was talking about first world problems was the world of 2019. And, you know, we're moving into this new phase, but God has created every person on this call for this moment. There's been an individual journey that every person on this call has been with God and God has placed you where you are for this moment. And 
Uh, Jason's heard me say this many times and I'll keep banging this drum. <laughs> Bizarrely, you know, I have invitations and things to do all around the world and I really do pray into the nations. Um, I, I got to speak with my friend John Scott from Glasgow, uh, not last night but the night before. He's one of the other few people who has this prophetic voice. Um, we're great, he's sitting in Glasgow and God will be like, pray for Indonesia. I mean him chat because we sort of feel a bit like um, <laughs> these weirdos who are like, just get these things for nations. And God has continually had Canada for like three years. I remember coming to Vancouver in 2019 and just walking around the city and just felt there was a shift happening. And I just feel that for a long time, Canada has, in a sense, perhaps, you know, it's so uh, uh, big and, and the noisy neighbours uh, down, down south. Um, and I just feel there's a moment, an alignment, where there's a lot of uh, soft power uh, that Canada has in the world. But I also think there's a lot of kingdom power and there's something really unique, a unique contribution. So there's the individual thing that you're all doing. I know if, if I meet a Canadian somewhere in the South, this is what's happening in Vancouver, this is happening in Toronto, Edmonton, whatever. You guys are in this secular soil. You're at the, you're at the forefront, the cutting edge of the secular soil. And it's different in different states. What's beautiful is I, I think of Canada as like a laboratory. Um, you know, like every province has this unique culture. There's this West Coast, East Coast, this sort of oil prairie culture there's the whole french speaking thing the french speaking world is such a frontier for the gospel um and to have that contained within this this country so i get so excited um when i think about canada and again canadians are not going to like come forward and go like you know hey we're here we're part of the next exile thing that god could be doing in the world but i feel like partially when i've been on calls with canada i just want to really affirm what god is doing in your country and always help you to see that so I think there's a moment for Canada. And, and I think this story, how you walk that out and then corporately, let's, let's not, like, I think of the Welsh revival happened with about 11 to 14 young adults in a small chapel. One after a service where they got together and prayed together. You guys are doing stuff like that. You are connecting in a nation. And, again, the mustard seed upside-down kingdom, this journey for two years, the incredible oaks of righteousness that could spring up in your country, I'm really excited about. So that, that's my other encouragement. Um, I'll pray. Hey, man, I'll just say one thing, yeah. Mark. I never tire of you saying that, though. So, like, never be like, I know Jay's heard this, like, we all want to, we need to get, because <laughs> I love it. And it stirs my heart, and I'm just so grateful. And so, yeah, please pray for us. Yeah. Yeah, God, first of all, we, we do just thank you for Canada. We thank you for this nation. We thank you for the strategic way that you've placed it. I think of the Pacific and uh, the Pacific century that's coming and Canada's gateway to the Pacific. We also just, Father, think of um, the Atlantic and it's a gateway too to the Atlantic. Um, we just thank you, Father, for the good name that Canada has in the world. And, Father, I just want to pray that that goodness can become gospel goodness. I thank you, Father, for the way that you've raised in previous generations a leadership uh, of Canadian pastors, thinkers, teachers. But, Father, I just pray you do a new thing now. And I pray, Father, for a pushing back of the tide in Canada, of unbelief, of secularism. Um, and we just pray, Father, that you will just begin to create a remnant that you will create a people who are different. Uh, I want to pray and thank you for every province, their uniqueness, the unique contextual things going on, this wonderful multicultural nation. I want to thank you, Father, too, for the custodians of the land, the Indigenous people, the First Nations. And I just want to pray a blessing over every person, English speakers, French speakers, all the different languages every church, the different denominations. Father, we thank you for every one of them. And I just want to pray, Father, I know that Canada's move is not just for Canada. It's also for the nations. Uh, I know, Father, that you're going to send out people into the world, that people will increasingly listen to leaders from Canada and Canada will step into a place of leadership amongst the nations in this next era, a bridge between East and West, Pacific and Atlantic between ancient cultures and modern contemporary cutting-edge cultures. 
I just pray, Father, that you'll help Canada and her church to see how you've placed them at this moment. And I know too, Father, that you actually will use Canada to minister to the United States, to show a different way. So prepare that nation, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. I want to also just pray for every leader on here. We've talked about a bunch of absolute, real, under-the-hood stuff today. And from the hidden place, the membership, we know that so much of leadership is a weird, mysterious art. It's so hard to define. It takes all of us. But we just want to at this moment again say yes to you. Give you all of us. Father, we repent of how at times perhaps we've looked to ministry and leadership to feed us, and we know that only you can feed us. So we ask, I ask that you may feed every person. I pray for an extra season of intimacy and deepening. Father, I pray that this process that every person on this call is on of developing their leadership, that you'll grow this group together to champion each other on. We pray of obligation. We pray of relational entanglement. And instead we pray agape love, the vision of the church, of relationships that are healthy and, and, and flow from our relationship with you. Father, whatever people are facing in their churches, it's hard being a young emerging leader often when there's so much expectation from our culture, from perhaps our Christian peers, from perhaps even older generations in the churches in which we've moved into and the areas in which we're leading. Guide every person here with wisdom and discernment. I just want to pray a prayer of protection to Father, I told the story of my peers dropping off, and I want to pray in faith that that does not happen to this group. I want to pray, Father, that you'll protect their health, protect their relationships, protect their integrity and their purity, protect their, their holding to your gospel, biblical kingdom truths. Father, give them courage, give them bravery. Help them to lead at those moments where they think, I'm not worthy, but we know you're worthy. We don't have to have the answers. You are the answer. We don't have to be good. You are good. I just want to pray for any religious spirit where people feel that they've got to live up to some perfection, some molds of the past, and even Jesus, all the ways in which leadership is continually thrown at us from the CEO model, the entrepreneur model, even the couple of guys intellectually talking over coffee on a podcast model. Free these people into what you've called them to. Help them to take ground for your kingdom. Help them to win the battles in the hidden places. Empower them, give them more of your spirit. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to say a huge thank you to Mark for making time to be with our incubator crew and for letting us share this with all of you today. As I mentioned at the beginning, Mark has a new book out now called A Non-Anxious Presence. And I'm a sucker for a good subtitle. So listen to this one, how a changing and complex world will create a remnant of renewed Christian leaders. I love that, a remnant of renewed Christian leaders. This is what God is doing in our time. He's building a remnant of a new kind of Christian leader who's dependent, humble, courageous. And whenever Mark releases something, I'm ordering it and reading it right away. And I want to encourage you to do the same. So we'll have links to all of that in the episode description if you want to check that out. Hey, before you go, I want to tell you about an event happening in our community. Daryl Johnson, who many of you know, is a close friend, part of our ministry, and one of my favorite expository preachers alive. And Daryl has over 50 years of experience preaching the Bible, and he wants to give that away. So on June 3rd, we're going to be doing a one-day event with Daryl about preaching. You can take it in online or you can join us in person in the Vancouver area if you're nearby. You can find out all the information for that on daryljohnson.ca. And in two weeks time, we're excited to share some session highlights from our time with the Incubator crew in England. We took the whole group over to England to meet with pastors in London and in Oxford. And we want to share some of the highlights of those conversations with you. So that's coming up in the next episode. And lastly, before we sign off today, I want to say a huge thank you 
to everyone who partners with CCLN and all of our partner churches. It's a pretty powerful thing. They're individuals who are given regularly to the work of CCLN and churches who are giving to the work of CCLN because they believe in the vision of supporting and encouraging pastors across Canada. So thank you so much to each of you for making this podcast and all the ministries we do possible. Well, that's all from me today. Tons of love. Looking forward to being back with you in a couple of weeks. Thank you.